welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, co-owner of the Company Horns of Odin. I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Yo! Sorry, I, I so recently some somebody said that I sound a little too like Lars Ulrich from <laughs> from Metallica when I when I say hello, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta keep mixing it up a little bit, right? <laughs> and so today we've got a really special guest. Uh, a few people on Instagram will probably already know him. He's one of my personal good friends. Um, it's. But uh, you'll find him on Instagram as Badger King Tattoo. He goes by the name of Brock. And yeah, how are you doing? Hello, I'm very well, thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you for uh, thank you for uh, inviting me. No problem. It's been a it's been a long time coming. You're one of the first people I tried to to get on here, so it's really good to finally make it happen. <laughs> yeah, I'm notoriously hard to get hold of, aren't I? So are you saying he's been stringing us along for months here? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you don't understand. I'll I will send him messages on Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram. Like I'll just circle between the three, hoping to get a reply <laughs> in one of the formats eventually. I've become harder to get hold of than Sean Hammer Sean the Hammer Parry, so uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's true, you actually have. I can get hold yeah. of Sean a lot easier. <laughs> so quickly just a quick introduction. For anybody that doesn't know you, you are, I guess, a Nordic and Celtic style tattooist. You trained under Sean at Sacred Knot Tattoo. And I guess you, it's safe to say your passion probably leans toward more the Celtic style stuff now rather than... I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do. I love the Viking art styles and stuff, but obviously, like, the Celtic art is what I grew up with a bit more. Um sort of drawing them in my maths textbooks at school and stuff uh, uh so it's um it's a little closer to my heart but i do love both of them and i enjoy doing both to be honest and yeah i mean you do both very well obviously yeah i have my hand and forearm done by you i've got my foot done so you do do the the north style still uh, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anybody, I would say anybody that hasn't seen your style recently, I've been loving all the bits and bits you've been doing on Instagram. The sort of you've been doing a lot more animal based stuff. Yeah, yeah. So like, um, I, obviously, as you know, but the listeners don't. Uh, I was originally a zoologist, um, and so animals hold a really uh, dear place in my heart, and um. And obviously, they feature so heavily in the the Celtic art as well, all the interlaced animals and the Pictish animals. So, I've uh, I've really enjoyed recently having some time off to uh, have a deep dive into that sort of style. So, yeah, I mean, I'm really enjoying the, all the color that you're adding to it. Most of the artwork I've seen of yours before tended to be black and white, whereas now you you're putting those really vibrant colors. So, when it comes to drawing animals, obviously being a zoologist, I guess does that give you some kind of advantage does it make it easier or is it not really much difference um well i think in some ways it makes it a little easier because uh obviously i know how their bodies work and i i did a lot of work on anatomy so i see a lot of people like drawing horses really wrong <laughs> uh, <laughs> so <laughs> uh it's it, in some ways yeah it's, it's nice to be able to draw a horse quite well uh, and then in others, it, it, I kind of uh, kind of hate when I have to draw an animal that is so biologically inaccurate to make the knot work work or whatever. 
there's that sort of body horror element of the Celtic art that <laughs> doesn't always sit well. But, but isn't that also a little cool, though? I mean, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not disparaging of the old Celtic masters in their uh, <laughs> their warping of zoology, <laughs> but. <laughs> There, there's something to be said for that. I mean, also with the Nordic art, right? Like the sometimes these animal bodies, you're, you're like, wait, what happened right there? <laughs> <laughs> you can't tell whose tail goes into whose butt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always a good time. <laughs> so I would say I noticed you did um, a Tiger King kind of homage the other day, which is a Celtic, <laughs> a Celtic Tiger King. I don't yeah, know if you had a yeah, chance Joe, to see that material. Joe Exotic in uh, in the Celtic style, yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> was that on Instagram? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I posted it last night. So uh, yeah, I just thought like it's it's uh, it's times like these you need to bring a smile to people's faces and do something a bit wacky and weird, right? So exactly. There's a uh, there's a friend of mine on Facebook who keeps uh, posting um, memes. Uh, where he, like the theme is Nordic mythology, but he uses like uh, images from from the Tiger King. <laughs> it's like so it's like <laughs> some reference to some myth or something like that, <laughs> and like it, <laughs> and then it's like the the Tiger King images. So I love it. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to see if I can find them out. <laughs> Did you see the photo of the two farmers who who kind of paid homage to the to the Tiger King? They got it. must have obviously had a cow and had some of the agricultural spray and sprayed it with so it looked in tiger colors <laughs> i guess and uh oh no <laughs> put, put on their flannel shirts and uh kind of you know how they you tie the bottom and pull it up through the top yeah. and made it a little bit <laughs> so that, was, that was pretty good that's crazy i mean that series seemed to just get released at the absolute perfect time just as everybody oh it, yeah yeah it dropped right on point didn't it like it did it did yeah, no, it's uh, much needed. <laughs> <laughs> so what made you go from zoologist to, I guess, like specializing and doing, I assume you've always drawn, so it's something you've always loved, but taking that leap from being with animals to actually doing it for, you know, doing artwork for a career? Yeah, well, um, so I, I had always sort of struggled to find work in the animal world. So... Uh, for anyone that doesn't know, it's it's ludicrously hard to get any sort of paid position in a uh, a zoo or any sort of place like that, unless you're teaching. Uh, basically, I guess that's why Joe Exotic has everybody working for free, right? So um, <laughs> it <laughs> it's not it's not far off. Um, but but please so, tell me you've never lived in a trailer on somebody's compound eating expired meat from Walmart, right? <laughs> no, I was gonna say yeah. Uh, I've never eaten sausage off the back of a truck. So. <laughs> I'm glad to do that. <laughs> I've got that going for me. I hope that's not a euphemism. <laughs> um, so yeah, I uh, I ended up saving up some money because um, I was a zoology lecturer and then I ended up saving up some money to uh, go to Sean Parry for a tattoo. Uh, and I showed him my sketchbook and said, like, these are my ideas. This is what I'd like you to portray and Apparently, he liked my ideas because six months later, he offered me an apprenticeship. Uh, and I, I think I'd be stupid to turn it down, to be honest. So, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for anybody that, that doesn't know, I was at, with me and you go back a while, you 
we kind of met through the business and you ended up designing our logo. So all the people who see our logo on t-shirts or on, on Instagram, you know, that was, that was your design. You, you kind of came up to us and said, you know, hi, my name is Brooke. If you ever, if you ever need any artwork doing, just, just let me know. And, you know, from there we kind of just had a, had a friendship and you do did a bunch of artwork for us. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was before Sean had uh, offered me the apprenticeship. I think um, that we met, and then uh, obviously everything sort of exploded from there. And uh, I'm very lucky to have uh, such a, a an ardent fan base. Uh, and obviously, uh, I think we've sort of helped each other grow and sort of come up together like that. Uh, in that respect, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think we both started out pretty much at the same time. I think. When yeah. we first met you, we well, were you'd, what... you'd been trading for a while, hadn't you? But um, yeah, but I mean, we certainly like. I think we'd only just been doing. We, I don't think we'd ventured into clothes yet. We'd only been doing, really making the horns. We were at one of our first yeah. shows that you happened to just to be at. So we were very much still in the fledgling times. So <laughs> it was a it was a good a good partnership. It just landed at the right time, and like you say that. For, for for us, obviously that that and hopefully for other people, that logo has some kind of meaning. Now it's it's weird to, I mean, I imagine it's probably quite strange for you to to see it popping up every so often. I think oh, I I designed that. Yeah, yeah, it's mad to see like people all over the world wearing wearing my artwork, uh, and obviously that goes hand in hand with the tattoo stuff. Like having people come from Australia to then go home with my artwork on their skin is I would never have thought that possible. So, <laughs> yeah, it's mad. Yeah, I mean, the way it's the way that you, Sean, and now Gloria work, I think, is what brings everybody in. It's it's the fact you know people aren't giving you designs ahead of time, and you're just putting them on transfer paper and putting them on the body. When you go to Sacred Knob, literally, you guys have about five, six Sharpies of all different colors. And you, somebody says, you know, I kind of want this design. You know, they give you a, a blueprint or a, a general idea, and then you will draw it on freehand onto the body. And, you know, the first time when you when you drew on my hand and my forearm, I remember looking at the Sharpie thinking, <laughs> how is this going to work out? What, what's going to happen here? I was a little bit nervous. And then obviously <laughs> once you started and started inking it, you know, you start seeing the... The skills are there, so I think you know that's why you're getting people travel from, you know, literally all over the world for you guys because what you do, I guess, is so different, and you all have your own raw individual artistic skills aside from just tattooing. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it. I think that's you're right. It's it's an experience, and when I went to get my tattoo with Sean, uh, I I don't remember having that sort of nervousness of what on earth am I doing. Um, but I think I just trusted that Sean would uh, would do do justice to my ideas. But it is that experience, and you come away with something that literally no one else can ever have, uh, which is which is really cool. You know, that's actually that's that's actually how most of my tattoos have come into existence. Um, yeah, so, so some tattoo artists just like drawing and uh, starting uh, freehand drawing. Um, and and it, it, people have always asked me, aren't you a little worried? Like, <laughs> like are you worried that? And I was like, no, actually, I, I, you know, it's gonna it's gonna turn out the way it's gonna turn out, and I asked for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
<laughs> it's only until you die anyway, so... Oh, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and you know what? Once you get to the level of being as tattooed as, as me or Daniel, I mean, people are just going to look at you and be like, there's a tattooed guy. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I'm lucky enough to call you and Sean both friends, so, you know, I've got trust in you both. So when I turn up, I think for, for every time I've got both of you, I've never really given you an idea. I've just said, here's a little area of skin do whatever you want to do and let's see what happens yeah i think some ways that's uh that's easy easy uh when when someone says like you have free reign do whatever you want uh and then on, on some some days and in some ways it's that's those are the hardest people and you want someone to come in and say i would like a mammon style wolf right here with his head here and you just do exactly what they say <laughs> um yeah i mean I I'm always under the impression of allowing experts to do what they do best. And, you know, I think that that works in all walks of life. I try to take advice from people who specialize in certain areas. And I've always figured that you guys know what flows, you know, what fits, fits well where it does. So I just kind of allow you to do what, do your thing. Yeah. I like to think that um, the work we do at Sacred Knot has a sort of a balance between historical accuracy and, um, making it sort of aesthetic for a modern audience as well. Like um, having that balance there, I think really helps. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, uh, I mean, that that's, that's what makes it relevant in modern times. Um, exactly. Yeah. You know, from the scholarly perspective, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about, well, all of this revival, you know, uh, revival of, of, of medieval art, rev revival of uh, also like neo-pagan, um, you know, spiritualities and all that stuff. And and from the scholarly perspective, people are usually like, well, it's not real, right? <laughs> because it's like people people who are like living in modern times, looking back like a thousand, fifteen uh, hundred years uh, or eight hundred years, and then they're picking something up and then they're turning it into something else right and that's that's yeah. why scholars like look at it and say it's not real but it is real right it is yeah. <laughs> i mean this is something that's relevant for people now and i think that's that's the key isn't it the the relevance is exactly is the most important bit and that's like i uh, that's the people sorry, like you on. who are you know making that relevant you you you're making this ancient art form re relevant and um, and making it fit in the modern time, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I like to think that um, I'm helping to build something uh, in that respect. And uh, obviously, it's it's something very new. I, I mean, like in the 1800s, they had a, a big resurgence of interest in like, so the Celtic revival um, and in Norse mythology and stuff. But again, like we've got this new, this new resurgence uh, and it's cool to be a part of building something new. Um and it is it is it is that relevance that it it speaks to people and it is relevant to people's lives today. Like I was listening to the um, the podcast you guys did with Sugabodi, um, and sort of he described himself as a a neo pagan. I, I maybe he used a different word, but um, and I was just sat there thinking like, like I identify as a an atheist, but a lot of what he was saying like. I really agree with and it's interesting that two different labels can sort of be applied to the same thing um it's interesting you say that because that was one of the questions that I asked Josh when we had Josh Rude on was whether you could be as a true and 
atheist and he you know he was of the opinion that he believes you can mm-hmm. and so do i i mean i I was raised that way and um and it, to some extent identify as heathen pagan whatever you you want to call it myself i i don't really like labels that much but um uh but yeah and and you don't have to have any like fervent belief in gods or that kind of stuff you can you can it's it's a matter of more of like a mindset and worldview i would say than than anything else yeah absolutely yeah I, th- I think that's a good thing and it has its negative sides as well because i guess on one hand you get the freedom for people to to do as they feel and you know i guess identify as they feel and take parts but then on the other side it allows people to be almost a bit too aggressive with it as well to one sense and and be you know if you don't believe exactly how they think then they're very judgmental and say oh well you're not part of this so it it has you know it's good size and bad size to it i've definitely seen i've seen a lot of that in uh in also true uh the sort of it's this way no it's this way and and a lot of it is a lot more nuanced than that i think um, absolutely no and and as somebody who has been <laughs> reading a lot of ancient roman literature as well you know these discussions were also present back then you know yeah. uh, <laughs> uh read marcus aurelius right and he his meditations and he is talking about um do the gods exist uh, well i don't know and and then he comes up with like an argument for why they do right but but what we realize here is that in his time in the 200s and somethings of the, in the roman empire there was a discussion did those gods that everybody venerated did they actually exist how did they exist and all that stuff and these have always been uh, part of uh, these discussions have always been part of like our world as as human beings, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, Mateus, sometimes you make me feel so stupid with all these things that you just <laughs> no, pull no, no, out no, of thin no. air. You have to, you have to <laughs> remember that this is what I've done with my life, man. <laughs> is there is there any time period you don't know about? <laughs> yes, yes, there is. I I am, I am a little iffy on. Well, three weeks in the 1600s. <laughs> <laughs> it's like sometimes we'll just be talking and you'll just pull out this this book from an author from like the Roman times. Obviously, it's not your area of specialism, but you still know all about it. And I'm like, man, I'm so thick. Why can't I just do that? Dude, I've been nerding out since I was... 13 so <laughs> so it's like I, i've done this for a living so to speak most of my life <laughs> let's let's pull the curtain back a little bit how old are you now me yeah oh shit. Uh, i'm i recently turned 38 right so really yeah i didn't i didn't even know that you you look about my age which i'm only 31 no i so i i it, it's tricky with me people people think i'm um I'm 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 pretty young actually. It's it's quite funny. Is uh, not so long ago on my YouTube channel, there was somebody who's like, "Oh, a young young Jackson Crawford." <laughs> I'm actually older than him. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, just a couple of years. <laughs> Still, it's kind of funny. Like, <laughs> I think I think they mean a hip and cool Jackson Crawford. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I take it in the po- most positive way I can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Trading yeah, in would... the cowboy hat for the baseball baseball cap <laughs> for the baseball cap. Yeah, no, it's it gets a little weird sometimes on campus when people think I'm a student. 
That's, that's <laughs> oh, yeah. Us, yeah, usually the first day of classes, my students think I'm also a student. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. So do you, when it comes to teaching, do you have to wear a suit and tie or... No, we're pretty, we're pretty relaxed. Um, I, of course, in some ways I try to tone it down a little bit and some of the medals, t-shirts that I usually like to wear, I don't necessarily wear on campus. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's funny cause I, I range between, you know, this, uh, baseball cap slash t-shirt, uh, look and, and then like a three piece, three piece suit. So that I, I'm just, or a little eccentric and i think everybody's gotten used to it at this point <laughs> i think when you're when you're like that people appreciate it more when you do pull out the suit i think so uh, too yeah. <laughs> yeah they they sort of say like oh you you cleaned up good right like <laughs> exactly and i look nice when i do it like <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah i think i saw a photo of you on facebook of you in a in a suit and i've never seen that every time obviously we do the podcast you've got a cap on and a t-shirt and i was like who's this guy <laughs> yeah no i i look like a completely different person <laughs> you do so let, let's jump back on on topic i guess even though we haven't really started yet um mm. brock obviously you have a big interest in the celtic side of the viking age it's not something that i know a lot about i'm guessing from mateus's wealth of knowledge he knows a little bit about it I have I have a couple of uh, nuggets to throw in into the conversation, yeah. So just just to start out, before we get before we get too deep for someone like me that knows very little about this area, what was the state of like I guess the countries around that time? What was established? Were I mean, obviously, we, England wasn't established as in England, but was there still like a little area for Wales? And I guess Scotland existed to some point, and Ireland, I guess, didn't have the split between Northern Northern Republic back then. But <laughs> how was how was it working over there? What was you know? Give it a little bit of a, a layout and a and a backstory, I guess, to so people can get in, a picture in their minds of how it was. Yeah. So um, obviously, when you say the word the word Celtic, uh, what we're dealing with is is sort of more of a a sociolinguistic group rather than an ethnic one i would say um and so we're talking about the the gales in uh, ireland and the west of scotland and then you've obviously got the picts who are arguably celtic in the east of scotland uh, and then you have the the britons who are sort of at, at that point in the in the east of uh in the west of great britain um, and they they sort of go on to become the the Welsh people. So the and they're they're the three sort of main language groups that you're talking about there. So um, I don't I don't want to deep dive too much into it because um, but I but like like you say I do think uh, we need to sort of see where we're starting from. Um, so so the Irish at that point are are Gaelic people, and at that point there are uh, Gaelic people in. Uh, the west of Scotland and uh, throughout the island of Ireland, and they're sort of colonizing uh, and raiding Wales and Cornwall as well. And and aside from that, Ireland is also separated into uh, several uh, local kingdoms. So so there's not necessarily a, a sort of like a political unity either um, in that in that area. Yeah. So there there might be there might be um, an Ardry 
uh, a high king uh, of Ireland, but um, it's it's not necessarily having the same weight uh, as as the king of England would later later have. Um, and like you say, it's it's split up into different kingdoms who all have their own agendas and and stuff that they want to get done, uh, and there's no sort of constitution, uh, as it were. But they would have they would have um, ascribed to uh, a type of law called Brehon law, uh, which uh, was sort of led by the uh, the Brehov class. Like if if anybody speaks Irish, Brehov is the modern Irish uh, word for a judge. Uh, and so these are the people that are sort of laying down the law rather than it coming from kings. The law is sort of more more a law of the people. Um, I think I think some scholars might argue that, but uh, <laughs> that's 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 what we're told in in popular history books, uh, which I think will become a key theme as we go through. That perhaps some of the popular history books aren't as accurate as we'd like, but. <laughs> <laughs> that's usually the case <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah one example is like uh the 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 popular belief is that the irish sort of colonized scotland during the kingdom of uh dal Rieta, um and they sort of went over there and took their language with them and that's where scots gaelic comes from um but scholars have sort of have they've sort of been saying since the early 90s like well actually the material gaelic gallic culture existed in scotland long before that they were probably speaking the language long before that um and yet there's still books being released in the 2010s that say yeah the irish brought the irish language to scotland and that's where we get gallic <laughs> and stuff so yeah so if you've got sort of gaelic people down the west coast of scotland and in ireland are they in communication with each other or would they be, be two people that may have separated long long before and don't really communicate and act together or does that mean you know do i mean are they independent yeah absolutely they would have they would have been in contact with each other and um i know some linguists will say that um uh, certain dialects of Irish Gaelic uh, in Ulster are more similar to certain dialects of Scots Gaelic than they are to other dialects of uh, Irish Gaelic. There's there's a, a continuum, a linguistic continuum, uh, going through that geographical area, uh, and we we kind of have to assume that there would have been a social continuum too. Okay, so is that would that be a case of the? Would the two languages have started out as as one and then split and evolved in the two sort of geographical locations or uh yeah so so the the idea that I get from the scholarly stuff I've read is that um the the Gaelic language is coming from mainland Britain to Ireland, obviously because that's the only way it could have come, and some people got left behind in Scotland at some point in time um but as we've just said, like they are in constant contact with each other. Um, so they, they do end up forming this continuum of mutually intelligible um, languages. And sort of, I, I can understand sort of 25% of songs I hear in Scottish Gaelic. So it's, it's, they're, they're from the same family. Yeah. I guess for, for me, the only thing that I can relate that to in modern times would be French Canadian, I guess, 
I know my sister lives in Canada and, and we were speaking to a, a fellow who came from Quebec and he was saying how the French that they speak there is pretty different to the French they speak in, in France. And a lot of French people from France can't necessarily understand or don't pick it up as easy the, the French-Canadian version, which sounds quite strange because you would assume they were both French. But I guess they started out as one language and then over the time up to modern time, I get have separated. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, from, from, from sort of like that linguistic scholar perspective, I mean, it's always a, uh, it's, it's always a question of discussion. Where do you draw the distinction between languages and dialects? Right. Um, when you look at the Scandinavian languages, Danish, Swedish, and Norwegian in particular, you could, for instance, say that they are in essence, dialects of the same language. Uh, because they are so close, uh, both in terms of grammar, vocabulary, syntax, that that it, it's um, it, it it is it is hard to sort of justify from a linguistic perspective, right? That um, um, that there is a, uh, a that they that they are different languages. But um, what is an the typical popular way of saying it is also that a language um, is a dialect within uh, with a navy and an army, right? As a, as long as it has like a territory that, that this is where we speak that language, then it's a language, not a dialect. Um, yeah, yeah, we're we're back to that point of humans love to put labels on stuff, right? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly, and um, yeah, and 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 the question is. Uh, so the thing is also with, uh, especially in, in the Irish area and Scotland and so on, um, it is very similar, a very similar situation as with uh, Iceland and Western Norway, that, that language has really become the identifying factor that separates us from other people in, in modern times. Like this is where we can sort of like find our identity. Uh, so I think a lot of that also like goes into it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, obviously, uh, during the the Celtic revival and everything, like language became a very important aspect uh, of Irish culture, um, and how the education system dealt with that in the twentieth century may have killed off all enthusiasm for it. But certainly, <laughs> I think for a, for a lot of people today, uh, it is a huge part of the culture and of national pride still. Yeah. Do do a lot of people. St- or oh, are a lot of people still able to speak Gaelic today, or is it one of those things that's quite rare? Uh, so the native populations, uh, so native speakers, um, it's it's hard to say because obviously you have native speakers in the the Gaeltacht, which are the traditionally Irish speaking communities, um, where it never died out, uh, and they we could sort of say that they are they are dwindling. They're doing better than people had projected they would do in terms of uh, keeping the language alive. Um, but then you also have people in the cities who are brought up um, speaking Irish and going to school in Irish and stuff. So I, I have lots of mates who uh, I would I would say are, are completely fluent, but not native. Uh, so it's, it's a difficult question to answer. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Intersectionality, that's always the, the, the thing, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so getting back to, to the Viking Age, obviously we've established that there's you know there's different kingdoms in, in Ireland. So at what point do the Vikings arrive? <laughs> what 
you know, let's go from there. What what happens? I mean, I've kind of from from my understanding of what I've read was that they actually visited Ireland before Lindisfarne. Now, Mateus, you may be able to tell me I'm completely wrong on that. I mean, we do have um, from from the uh, beginning of the 800s um, accounts of raids. Right, we have uh, chronicles mentioning um, and some uh, considerable uh, raids too. Um, so there's there's a whether or not they're they're there before Lindisfarne. So I mean, we do know that that there was contact with Scandinavia before Lindisfarne. Like Lindisfarne is sort of like uh that's that's again uh, an example of of uh of humans loving to put uh, labels on things right and so like Lindisfarne is the beginning of the viking age well not really but that 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 tends to be you know that's that's the textbook kind of start of the viking age with with 1066 being the end of the the viking age that's kind of you know like say the labels they put on it yeah and i think i mentioned this before this is what in scholarship we call the anglo-scandinavian um viking age so, so that is one hundred percent defined by, by by political processes in England, right? Um, in the, the with the attack on Lindisfarne in seven ninety three, and then the uh, defeat of Harold Hardruler at Stamford Bridge, right? And um, well, the the interesting thing is, of course, that there are, there are Danish kings that are planning attacks on England in ten seventy and seventy five, and <laughs> coming over with a little fleet here and there. Uh, there are Norwegian uh, attacks on Scotland in the eleven thirties, and so on and so forth. So it doesn't definitely it doesn't end at that point, but it also doesn't begin in seven ninety three. We have, um, what well, is it in the seven eighties? I think it is. I can't remember exactly, but sometime before 793, we have um, what appears to be a couple of Scandinavians who kill a sheriff. Um, I think it's in Kent or something like that because he demands taxes off them. <laughs> <laughs> so, so always a bad idea, right? <laughs> yeah, and that just sounds like some kind of random skirmish more than anything else. But we're dealing with, you know, a, a, a period that begins already in the 500s of um, of trade networks, right, um, in, in, across the channel. And that, of course, brings Scandinavians in everywhere, um, also on the western sides of, the, uh, of, of uh, Scotland and, um, and into Ireland and so on. So, so we, I'm, I'm sure that if we start digging more into it, we will find evidence of, of interactions um, much earlier than than the late seven hundreds, but yeah, officially uh, from the eight uh, the beginning of the eight hundreds, that's when we start seeing Viking uh, attacks on Ireland. So, so the Viking Age is just the pesky British wanting everything to be about them again. Uh, no, it's also oh, it's, it's English. It's just as much a, a way for Scandinavians to to boost their own uh, inferiority complex. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, that was when we went out and conquered everything and all that stuff. <laughs> So, I'm guessing, did the, would the relationships have been purely sort of peaceful and trade based to start with, or would they have been, like you say, raids and trying to take what what they want? So obviously, I guess, I guess when you think of the Viking interaction with England, you think of you know raids and violence, and it's not a very you don't think of it as a peaceful time. Whereas it sounds more with Ireland that it was more 
I guess, you know, trade and trying to mutually benefit each other. Is that right, wrong? Bit of both, um, complicated. <laughs> it's complicated, I think. Um, but certainly if we're talking about that that Viking Age, as you would say in, in British history, uh, it's it's a very similar timescale. Um, so you like like uh, Matthias was saying, it's sort of uh, 8th century, and then rather than 1066, um, the classical view of the end in, in Irish history would be... Um, 1014 with the battle of Clontarf uh, and obviously that's not the end uh, the Norse scales were still present and they they're sort of st- still there and they eventually assimilate into um, the Norman culture that comes over um, because uh, they they sort of I think they get called the the east men um, the men that live in the east because obviously most of the Viking settlement was in the east of Ireland um so they they are still there and they they're obviously still interacting in some way but the the classical view of what is the end is the battle of Clontarf so it is that sort of very similar 1066 1014 kind of kind of time frame of when it ends okay yeah exactly and and um so what we need to um uh, realize is that there's still so much knowledge that we haven't gotten a full handle on like for instance most recent genetic investigations of the irish populations indicate actually a, a, a stronger uh, imprint of of scandinavian uh, genetics um <clears throat> which you know goes counter to 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 these old typically like late 19th century early 20th century theories on the relationship between scandinavians and and these, these quote-unquote celtic populations right um, that were based off of uh, racial uh, theories more than anything, <laughs> more than reality, right? Um, saying, oh, these these blonde Scandinavians would never mix and blah, 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 blah. And of course they did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you mention uh, blonde Scandinavians because uh, there was there was a distinction uh, in Old Irish between blonde and dark. Yeah. Uh, so the the Fingal, the, the, the blonde strangers were the... Norwegians and the dark-haired strangers were the Danish. Okay. Yeah, and and see, this is an interesting discussion because, in in reality, we don't actually know what this really means. Like some have yeah. suggested, is it the dark hair? Is it darker clothing? And also others are even like, well, this might not even really pertain to Scandinavians as such. Some of it could also pertain to actually Northern African uh, pirates. Um, which we are okay, seeing yeah. along that whole coastal stretch up towards Ireland. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so there's there's so much um, there's, there's so much debate about these these things, and um, the interesting thing for me is that um, it looks like the relationships in uh, in like the Western British Isles um, between like the the locals and the Scandinavians coming in are vastly different um, than in uh, the Eastern British Isles, so the Dane law in particular. Um, as I said just before we uh, started the recording, I, I, I usually teach uh, these two um, areas as, as different subjects when I teach them in class because the Dane law is, is a full-on uh, colonization, whereas um, it gets much more complex when we are in the Hebrides, 
the Isle of Man, uh, Western Scotland, uh, of course, Shetland and Orkney, right? Um, and, and, and Ireland as well. Uh, Dublin looks like sort of like an intentional community where, where the Vikings were like, we're, this is, this is going to be our castle kind of situation. Right. But relations elsewhere seem, seem much more complex. Um, if you ask me. Um, yeah, I think when you, when you look at like the, the spread of material culture out of the Viking world with its epicenter at Dublin or whatever, um, then I think I think you definitely see that that interplay of of different uh, I want to say ethnicities, but you you know what I mean. Uh, yeah, dif- different social groups. It it becomes a lot more complicated. It certainly does, and and it's also so when it comes to the written material, we 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 are dealing with some uh, some some curiosities. For instance, there's. Um, there's this uh, a, a, a more or less elusive Atlantic Viking kingdom called Lathland. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this, Brock, but this it shows up is it, in. Is it? Yeah. Sorry, say it again. Lathland. I've I've heard it. Might, Lachlan. Yeah, yeah. It's um, also it's also Lachland. Um, it's because Loch Lachlanach is the modern Irish word for a Viking. Yes. Um it sort of means the the someone from the land of the lakes is yeah. the uh the literal translation. But yeah. Yeah, and and uh, I so there are two factors in all of this. There there it looks like there are two ways that it's spelled in the the chronicles and also I am most certainly mispronouncing all the, the <laughs> Celtic words here. <laughs> um but uh, but yeah, so this is some sort of a um sort of elusive uh, viking kingdom that is supposed to have existed in atlantic scotland and and we don't really have much more evidence of it than than these uh, literary references in the chronicles um and but but this is where these irish chronicles seem to to suggest that that the vikings doing incursions into ireland they come from this area now whatever that really refers to is is kind of <laughs> we don't really know actually yeah so t- just just to pull it back for a dummy like myself that really has very basic understanding on on sort of the viking actions in ireland so the um, so the vikings arrive now is that do they try to to take to take over ireland and make it their own land or do they try to settle and assimilate with the with the Celts or how how does that work? I'm just trying to because obviously you were just mentioning about you know Dublin being you know like a Viking hub. So that would lean towards them kind of conquering. But I'm not I'm not too sure. So they have uh numerous sort of centers if you will uh, around ireland so i i would say sort of dublin uh wexford waterford uh cork and limerick i would say uh and but then so i assume that are they taken by force well they're kind of, i i would say that they're they're sort of set up basically so you you're looking at the the vikings come along and they're Irish Irish history, as I understand it, at, at that point, the society is 
is uh, quite pastoral. Uh, and then the Vikings come along and urbanize those those areas. So whether there was a settlement there before or not, um, I, my understanding is that they came and, and urbanized those centers. I don't know if Matthias has a better information than I do. But it, Well, yeah, in this, like, urbanized in the sense of um, it, we can see quite distinctly what I know about is primarily Dublin uh, as, as an urban center created by Vikings, um, or at least fashioned, maybe not created, but fashioned. Uh, I, th- I think it's still a debate whether or not it was created by Vikings, but it, um, but the harbor in particular. Uh, so, so Scandinavian harbors are very uh, distinctive in this period. Um, you basically have a harbor line, a, a road that follows the the coastal stretch, and then you have these plots that are with the uh, short end um, towards the ocean, right? So you can basically park your uh, nice little Viking ship right there at the plot and then un- uh, unload all the goods and then you can trade towards the other short end uh, towards the um, the road, right? And this is what we see in Dublin. We see that in uh, in York as well um, as something that the Scandinavians fashion because this is what they have been doing in Scandinavia for some time now. Were they welcomed, <laughs> were they welcomed with open arms or... Because I imagine no king wants to give away area to another group of people. So obviously we know like York was taken by force and it became, you know, like a hope for the Vikings. So I'm just trying to get a grasp on the on the relationship between the peoples of whether, you know, they, they try they just go on and so, 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 so here's here's what we need to to consider in in the our modern ways of thinking about these things, right? First of all, we live in a world where countries have borders, and they have a sort of distinct institutions that um, that that are far-reaching in so many different ways, right? <laughs> um, now that was not the case back then, right? You you could be a king of some country and and not necessarily know that there is a, a whole population uh, that that has just set up over there. It, it, it'll take some time before you actually realize that that is happening, um, and and the extent to which this happens and how it is happening and so on, right? So 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 there is a possibility for Vikings, for instance, um, or Scandinavians to show up somewhere in in the british isles and then you know be present to an extent without anybody ever really thinking anything of it except oh these weirdos with uh, a strange language um they're still selling nice uh, glass beads and uh, a little bit of gold and they're buying our swords so what's the problem right uh, <laughs> and as long as the king gets the uh, taxes they might not have a big de- problem with it um this you know this idea of like the Vikings coming over in the, like, these uh, super loaded ships full of uh, uh, you know uh, teeth grinding uh, sword brandishing uh, <laughs> barbarians that's like that's very much that uh, it's incredibly like English nationalistic perspective of what the Viking Age actually was right um, and it's not like we don't see some elements of that here and there. Absolutely. We also see very intentional invasions, especially of England. Um, but but um, but it's probably in the beginning. And this is where there's a lot of like theories uh, that have been uh, proposed. Uh, for instance, there's this one Norwegian scholar who has proposed that there was 
a long-standing uh, uh, contact across the Atlantic, um, the North Atlantic, between Scotland, and the, 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 the different islands, uh, and Ireland, and then Norway in particular, because he's a Norwegian scholar, <laughs> so it's always about Norway. <laughs> um, and, and, and that this was some sort of uh, Atlantic community. And it was, everything was fine up until Christianity. And that's when the Scandinavians start getting more and more uh, aggressive. Um, now, that, that's, that's an interesting sort of like, I would say, anachronistic um, uh, theory, because I, I don't know if, if we, we see any kind of like real mobilization of, of pagans who are invading the British Isles because of, of, of the presence of Christianity and the spread of Christianity from the 650s, right? Um, but that's, that's what he suggested. Um, so that's one theory, right? Um, there, are, there are different other theories, uh, but I think all in all, it always comes back to that one factor, and that is trade, right? Trade is the thing that facilitates people's journeys across the North Sea, and and by and large, probably is is sort of the is responsible for relatively peaceful relations overall. I think uh, just to like expand on some of the points you made there as well. I think when people think about Ireland nowadays, they are thinking of like rolling fields everywhere. Um, whereas we even even in the seventeen hundreds, we have songs written by people who are lamenting the fact that the English are cutting down the ancient forests and stuff. So back then, there it wouldn't have ha- had the same physical landscape. Um, so just, just back to the point of you don't necessarily know who is on your land, who's just landed at the mouth of the river or whatever. But um, but yeah, certainly. And then thinking about like whether it was a shock to the system, these, these people coming in, we have like the annals... Uh, I believe the Annals of Ulster are talking about um, raiding and, uh, and uh, ostensibly pillaging going on by um, the native Fianna. Um, and they're, they're, they're an Irish um, sort of society. I'm, I'm writing a blog on this at the minute, so I won't go too deep into it here because it'd be very boring. Um, but um, they're like an Irish society li- living outside of 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 the uh, the settlements and everything living in the wild uh, and they're raiding the monasteries and causing hell for the hell for the monks and the monks are calling them the sons of death and everything so this is this is something that's already going on in ireland by the irish yeah um, they sound like before a before we even gang. start with the vikings <laughs> sons of death <laughs> yeah <laughs> namik bosh is what they're called i believe so yeah so so is the christianity in ireland at this point has that already yes. started to creep its way in and yeah absolutely um how how deep its hold is is up for debate like like i'm talking about um namik bosh the sons of death um they're they're sort of spoken as um raiding as pagans uh so whether that means they were raiding like vikings or whether they were raiding um because they were pagans um we don't know but there is there does seem to be certain evidence that not necessarily paganism intact but some form of 
paganism and some relics of the the Irish paganism have have survived, but largely Christianized by this point. So the the thing about monasteries, right? And so they are the ones who are writing the annals, the chronicles, oh, the, of all, all of the reports here. And that that's really important to keep in mind that they have a very particular perspective on all of this, right? Anybody who would ever t- attack a monastery or a church is a, is a damn pagan. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's one thing, right? <laughs> so and this is something that has also been debated about uh, Vikings. Like how pagan were they actually? Were, were they perhaps some of them? were definitely Christian. Um, what kind of Christian? That's another matter. Um, we, we, we know that in this period of time, there are, there are different kinds of Christian sects, right? We have the Cathars in, um, in the, uh, in, in the French area that are being, um, eradicated in the, in the thousands, uh, what is it? Late thousands, uh, in a, in one of the first crusades, right? Um, we we have other kinds of uh, Christianity that have spread throughout Europe. Arianism is, is one that uh, the early type of Christianity um, that was incredibly popular, especially with the Goths, um, so Germanic people, uh, ostensibly at least. Um, and and in the same way, you know, Christianity is not just one thing in Ireland at this time, and and neither in 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 Britain for that matter, or in the rest of the British Isles, um, and uh, and 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 that is also the case in in Scandinavia. Christianity is a lot of different things, especially in that period in the Viking Age, where Christianity gradually becomes more and more established as the um, the the religion of society. Um, we can see from the early vocabulary that is being used in Scandinavia about Christianity or, you know, Christian themes and such things, they, they come from Anglo-Saxon. And then, uh, then there's a shift once uh, Christianity becomes institutionalized as part of monastic power uh, and royal power. Um, uh, then it is uh, German vocabulary that is being used in Scandinavia. So there are also different competing churches that we're dealing with here. And I don't know too much about Ireland in that sense, but um, Ireland is often, as a Christian community in this period, represented very much as its own. But I'm sure it has influences from different places and there are competing churches, right, that that are uh, interested in, in establishing themselves both in Ireland, also from outside in in, in context of the um, the Irish uh, uh, Irish Christianity. So yeah, I yeah. think that I think there's this meme that uh, obviously the the Dark Ages in uh, Great Britain was just lights out and and <laughs> nothing went on, and that in that sense Ireland was was just cut off completely from the rest of the world for the, for that period and obviously it's not it's not the case um no but it's, <laughs> at the very least yeah. they would be able to sail around the english area and go <laughs> to france right <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. or spain <laughs> okay so just to put it back to ireland is obviously i want to try and learn as much as i can about it now obviously you said that the vikings have got settlements there and your trades happening between the two so everything sounds really hunky-dory and perfect so is it happily ever happily ever after and that's how it stays or 
do think do things get a little bit more tense. I can't imagine it's just all pleasantries. <laughs> you want to fill that in, Brock? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, well, obviously, so obviously there's raids on monasteries and everything. Um, and then it, it, like I said earlier, it all obviously comes to comes to a head with the the Battle of Clontarf, which scholars have differing opinions on who was on whose side, etc. Um, but it's it's not it's not completely peaceful. Uh, like I was saying earlier, we see the diffusion of uh, Norse material culture um, throughout the whole island, and we see Irish people adopting um, Norse names, um, or at least intermarrying so that their kids have a Norse given name with an Irish surname or vice versa. Um, so we do see that sort of that sort of inter- integration to some respects but just as there were warring kingdoms before the vikings came of course there's going to be bloodshed uh and there's going to be battles and stuff uh afterwards um so yeah yeah no, i mean so we can also draw on on the the other uh insular examples uh, uh north of uh ireland hebrides um shetland orkney uh, the Faroe Islands and and Iceland are also examples of like how how do these populations uh, interact with one another? It does very much look like there's there's a a, a general uh, interaction. It, it, it's not like as I, uh, as I said before with these early scholars in the in nineteenth and 20, early twentieth century being like oh they there was like some kind of weird segregation between these people they were intermarrying and um and and uh, just uh, interacting in different ways I mean, obviously of course yes then you also have various kinds of um um skirmishes and and so on um there's there's a there's something to uh, to consider here. So uh, because these this subject of like what was the level of uh, of aggression between these population groups that has that has been hotly debated over over extensive periods of time here, and there's something to be said for the um, the examples of Orkney and Shetland. Um, with Orkney and Shetland, it looks like we have well a blanketing of uh, of uh, Scandinavian place names, um, so so the old uh, Gaelic or Pictish or whatever they were speaking, I'm not entirely sure about that um, uh, names. They 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 seem to either be translated or renamed with Scandinavian names. Aside from that, we also see uh, Scandinavian becoming the language, right? But we can we can see that uh, there's a genetic continuation of the population. It's not like the Scandinavians uh, uh, perform some kind of genocide on the previous populations there. Uh, they marry the populations there, and then it seems like people start speaking Scandinavian for whatever reason. It's probably because you know it's uh, uh, there's a dominant um, language in that region. We can also see. That there is a introduction of a Scandinavian a material culture, right? But I mean, just because you have a Viking house, it doesn't mean that it's only a Swede who lives in it, right? And so there's also going to be other people living there. Um, so, so, so these, depending on what we focus on, whether we focus on literary sources, material culture, 
linguistic uh, evidence and so on, we will we can get different results, and we of course have to pull it all together to get the best picture of of what actually happened, whether or not it's the Orkneys or it's it's Ireland as well. I mean, we can see what is this? It is is it nine oh five that the uh, the Hiberno Norse are expulsed from uh, from Dublin? I think. Um, so there's a there's there's a concerted attempt to break the the, the Scandinavian hold of Dublin uh, then, and they get kicked out in in the early nine hundreds, right? Yeah. So um, I I wonder how much of that I don't know if if you can tell me I wonder how much of that is um is to do with like what the Vikings are doing there. So obviously it's it's often sort of touted as the um the the biggest slave hub uh in in slave market in the in Europe at that point or something isn't it um and i've i've obviously i've read um scholarly articles sort of saying there was probably quite an extensive slave trade in Ireland before that point anyway um but i wonder how much how much if if their economy was depending on slaves how much they were disliked because of that yeah um, that's a good question i so it it is my understanding that scandinavians are basically taking slaves in the british isles but i don't think it's it's just restricted to 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 the gaelic populations absolutely not they're also taking anglo-saxon slaves um yeah. and then transporting them across to to the east yeah of course and t- to a certain extent uh the native irish would have definitely uh loved the opportunity to sell a couple of their neighbors in dublin as well i suppose but <laughs> absolutely and see, that's the thing i mean with these uh societies that become targeted as uh, for by a slave market right um there are going to be actors in the society that that basically supply slaves from their own population right um that's also what we see with the transatlantic slave trade in West Africa. There, there are some who, some kingdoms that are profiting heavily on on selling uh, people from the area, right? Um, mm, yeah. So, so that is a possibility that you know uh, people would be getting pissed off, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, yeah. Well, a part part of the reason I ask is because uh, one of uh, one of Sean's friends uh, who studies. Um, archaeology in the Isle of Man was sort of saying a lot of the the stones put up on the Isle of Man, uh, which is another Gaelic nation for anybody who doesn't know, um, they they were put up by what seemed to be really rich uh, slave trading Vikings who had just been kicked out of Dublin, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's true. So. Yeah. And that's uh, that's also what we see as soon as the uh, these Vikings in Dublin are kicked out. Um, we start seeing silver hordes showing up on the other side over in England, um, that that have been buried for various reasons, probably probably because they were they were fleeing. So it's not <laughs> improbable to actually uh, suggest that that there was like a slave trading community, and that was the primary economy of of that Viking hub right there. We are also seeing so in in general it's. It's hotly debated too whether or not the Vikings were practicing slave trade that extensively. 
But I think at this point, what we see in archaeology, in certain places, both in the British Isles and in Scandinavia, it looks like, yeah, they there are some setups that look like straight-up plantations, you know, the same kind of uh, um, archaeological evidence, so to speak, just in a, in a Viking context, of course. So, yeah, I think, I think you can safely say that, that that was a big part of their economy. Just, um, just something slightly different on, on the aspect of um, military history, basically. Um, there's, is, there's also this meme in, in Irish history, and I wonder whether it's true, of the fact that um, the Vikings sort of introduced axes and bows to the native Irish. Um, you hear that quite a lot, and I'm just wondering if you have anything to say on that, Matthias. I am not familiar with that discussion, but it sounds it sounds a little that sounds a little far fetched. Like if you ask me, like yeah. bows have been known to humans for like uh, millennia. Like it would be weird if the Irish sort of, sort of forgot about those. <laughs> well, that I was just thinking about it yesterday, and I was thinking, well, we definitely know like the Picts had bows, and there's an argument that maybe they had crossbows. So it, it's. I was just thinking, like, how how did they not have bows, or whether it was just that they chose to use slings instead because that's what they wanted wanted so, to do. I so um, there there's there's something to be said for a very racialized discourse about the relationship between Scandinavians and the Irish uh, that has something to do with the English as well, right? The Irish have been coded as uh, racially inferior by both the English mm. and Scandinavians in the 19th century in particular um, and, and the early 20th century based off of these typical race theories on like there are like, three kinds of Europeans, the blonde ones, the, the little, the less blonde ones, and then the darkest ones, right? Which is nonsense, right? Yeah. Um, and I think those, those, these, these claims like these come from that kind of stuff. Like this is okay. this is like a way to make the Irish seem a little less civilized. They had to like mm. learn how to use a very simple tool like an axe from some Viking barbarian. You know that kind of nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I mean when I say memes. Is that like I I obviously know quite a lot about the period, but then do I trust what I know about it? Because so much of it, when I look into it, seems to be just um, perhaps not. Um, deliberately false information, but it's it's popular history that yeah. doesn't necessarily hold water. It's uh, what we typically see, and that this also goes for six, uh, Viking Age history in general. Um, are, are theories that were you know proposed back in the nineteenth uh, century that are still circulating in popular culture, and um, um, and I, I've been on Daniel's case about the whole thing of uh, the, the, the first democracy in the world was Iceland, right? That's one of those theories, right? It was like that, that, was, that was something that, you know, uh, the, the Icelanders were so happy to promote back in the 19th century because they were under the Danish kingdom, right? So being a republic would be awesome, <laughs> right? <laughs> Getting rid of those pesky Danes. And so looking back to that ancient history of some kind of a quote-unquote democracy that existed back then, right? I think uh, some Irish people have that with the, the Brehon law uh, and the Brehov sort of culture yep. before the Viking Age is that like, yeah, we invented democracy. And maybe maybe it's a little more... Uh, 
<laughs> I want to say egalitarian, but at the same time, it's definitely not democracy. <laughs> no, it's it's more um, oligarchy, yeah. if anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but again, as as we always come back to on this uh, podcast, it's complicated, and so <laughs> of course, <laughs> Every, everything's complicated. Um, I, I just wanted to play back to to the slave conversation. To be honest, there was there was a question I just wanted to ask quickly, which was what 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 was the general opinion about slave slave keeping at the time? Now, I mean, would ordinary people have frowned upon it, or was it just a very common thing? Was it a normal thing? I imagine, obviously, somebody coming and taking a loved one from you is, you know, that's not a good situation. You're obviously going to dislike that. But in general, was it just something that happened, so it was just accepted? Um, so, yeah, in, in general... Um, these kinds of of uh, relationships that are based off of somebody owning you either for life or a period of time were very uh, common uh, throughout Europe. Um, so, so we also have to. Uh, so, slave, slavery is not just one thing. Um, we 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 should consider these uh, these situations uh, as much more broadly, like for instance uh, in in uh, medieval Iceland and and also presumably before then uh, in the Viking Age Iceland we don't have any written sources to really fill us in but we assume that it was the same thing. We had the situation of uh, tenant peasants, right? Um, people who live on the uh, chieftain's land and they're not free. They are um, they, they they don't they, they were not granted a part of his land or or anything like that so they are fully in his control expected to vote in his favor all of these things like these people are not particularly free in any sense right they can leave but that's really that right <laughs> how much of a how much freedom do you have when that's your only option you can either do what i say or get the fuck out of here right <laughs> Um, and that's this that's the situation for most uh, quote unquote working class in Europe in this period of time, right? Then you have uh, debt. Debt is another way for you to enter slavery. So you owe a richer person um, an amount of money. You can't pay it up at time at the, at the time that they, that we agreed upon. Well, you can work for me for free for twenty years. Boom, slavery, right? Um, then there's, you know, the scenario where you get taken in warfare or raid and all of that stuff. And then, of course, also become a slave. And, of course, then what we also know from the rune, rune uh, stones in Scandinavia is that you can also be freed. Um, you could be a freed slave uh, who actually gets a little pot of gold from your master and then on your way to go set up your own little shop. And we have plenty of rune stones that actually mention um uh, some guy uh, who uh, praises the guy who uh, gave him his freedom and now he's smith and then he died and uh, went to viking <laughs> you know all of these things right so so it's it's a very it's a very rich tapestry so to speak what this like, ownership over human beings really is about in this period of time i guess i guess just to pull it back to what what brock was talking about specifically was within dublin the you know, the Vikings were expelled because of this idea of, of them keeping slaves. And I was just wondering whether that was because the Gaelics frowned upon the idea 
of slavery or was it that they were just generally fed up of the vikings taking their people to be slaves yeah i i I didn't i didn't mean to imply that i was just i was just sort of asking asking the question in case matthias had more information than me but certainly i've read um i've read articles where it's been argued that slavery was going on um probably uh in the period just before the viking age um in terms of like uh, the Fianna, the the warrior bands, um, it was probably an aspect of their ritualized warfare. Um, we don't know, um, but I think the the Christians may have frowned upon it. But um, I I certainly didn't mean to uh, imply that they would they were kicked out because they were slave trading. But uh, I just think it's an interesting idea. No. I- I, that's what that's why I asked the question. Not that I thought that that's what you meant. It was just I was wondering what the average sort of layperson's opinion on the slave trade would be, whether it would be kind of a negative one or just one of acceptance of that's kind of that's life. That's what happens. Yeah, I th- I think again it's it's complicated, um, and the 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 fact that we have to sort of postulate whether slavery was a part of the Fianna. Uh, sort of practices so it should sort of tell you that it, it wasn't it wasn't rife but it, it it probably happened so i mean that this this thing of slavery being a, generally perceived of as morally wrong it's a very new yeah. new perspective for humans to be honest yeah um i mean the, these debates begin in the 1700s uh, or or are very rampant in the 1700s right and that's that's when we see um the abolishment of slave trade in 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 certain contexts not not just when when britain when when the english abolished slave trade it's not just you know now we're done slave trading no no there's still some some slavery going on in different ways like it might just (laughs) be the transatlantic slave trade that we're not doing anymore but yeah um yeah and uh and and the, the the perception the perception of all of this is also very much based on localities in different ways. Um, you have to consider that law is not a universal thing in the medieval period, and definitely not before the medieval period. Law is something that has to do with a location, right? So when you have a trade port, that law or or that that place has a different law than the surrounding countryside. Um, that's one way that you can have different laws. You can also have different laws for different peoples within the same country, right? That's probably what is has something to do with the Dane law situation. Um, we're not entirely sure about that. It's, that, again, is also very strongly debated. <laughs> but that's just important to consider that, 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 that there that there ideas of what a law is is very different from the one that we have today too i think definitely in in ireland during the period we're talking about um a people who you would you would have status within your your tuha your um your tri- your tribes um but then outside of your tour you would not have any social standing as a person regardless of who you were Maybe if you were a poet or a satirist uh, or something, you might be able to go to another tribe and have some sort of semblance of your original status. 
Um, but if you are a respected member of your community, you go to another community, they don't, they don't trust you. And you, you have no so- social status uh, within that alien community to you. Um, so we're talking about people who have that sort of idea um, in terms of, of who can hold, who can and can't hold status and if you were to go to if you were to marry into a a tribe on the other side of the country you then have the status of the person that you married not the status of where you left um so uh, social status in uh, particularly in medieval ireland is 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 very complicated throughout the centuries i'm just giving you like a little snapshot there um but yeah in, in terms of um the fact that you you had any say in what happened to you once you left your tribe i think it's it's uh it's not it's not certain <laughs> no exactly and it, you, we're seeing the exact same situation in scandinavia uh, albeit with uh with modifications of various kinds like medieval icelandic law there's one law for icelanders there's another law for danes norwegians and swedes and then a third law for everybody else Everybody else don't have any rights. That's the <laughs> that's the basics, right? And and the other Scandinavians, they, like the 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 Icelanders, like recognize them as similar to them, but not the same, right? Uh, in medieval Icelandic yeah. law, and that's the same uh, elsewhere in um, in in Scandinavia. And you know, when we go to the saga literature, you know what always happens, right? Well. Um, uh, when some Icelander or Norwegian or whatever goes somewhere else, well, he he go, comes into that community and then he has to go to the king and 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 state his business and and especially his genealogy, right? And it is only when we find out that he descends from this important figure who is reputed to be a king and hero and all of the things that he's okay. Otherwise, he'd just be a nobody, right? Um, yeah, so and that's 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 really important to consider that uh, these yeah these tribal ways of dealing with uh, other humans is that you're essentially a non-person, faceless if you're not part of the tribe, and then you have to do something. Uh, there are keys to unlock, you know, the the acceptance of the tribe, right? And they depend on the local culture that we're dealing with. Ah, cool. So. We've mentioned Iceland a couple of times, so I just want to get into that a little bit. We don't have to go too deep into it, but obviously, I guess the the Celts had quite a, an influence in the early years of of Iceland. Now, I think we've mentioned on here before, Matthias, of as whether it was as slaves or Vikings, or whether it it was a more free role. And I just wondered what your thoughts on that were, bro. Uh, so my understanding of the history uh, with Iceland, uh, I don't have much knowledge on that, but um, I was always told that the the Irish monks went to Iceland to t- sort of treat it as a, a dishart, a, um, a place to get away and sort of meditate on Christ, I guess is uh, one way of putting it. Um, um and then obviously, uh, was there a genetic study that done that said sort of a lot of females in Iceland have uh, more uh, Irish or Scottish heritage? Um, but like as like I say, I don't I don't really know so much uh, about that side of things. Um, yeah. So the 
the genetics uh, indicate that the uh, the early population of Iceland in the in the late 800s and early 900s was a 50-50 split genetically between Scandinavians and and um, uh, Irish and Scots. Okay. Um, so that's that's really interesting. And then over time, it becomes more and more Scandinavian. So that is right. perhaps something that suggests a uh, intentional weeding out of of um, of, of the Gaelic populations. <laughs> and, I, I mean, it's it's still up in the air what what happened here. But you know, if if the um, if you see genetic markers of a certain population uh, dwindling over time, it must, if nothing else, mean that that population is more vulnerable to dying off for different reasons, right? Whether it's being killed off or it's simply being uh, if, uh, simply being in a state of being more vulnerable uh, economically. I mean, there, there are many, many reasons for that, or there could be many reasons for that. If it's as high as 50-50, would that lean towards those Celts being there as free folk rather than... Being taken I, I would say so. I mean, so as we've also talked about before, we have Celtic place names in Ireland. Patricksfjörður, Patricksfjörður, is a great example of that. That is a that is from that is an Irish place name, <laughs> a very distinct Irish place name. There are others as well. Um, the saga literature is full of uh, uh, Gaelic names in different ways. Usually, these Gaels don't have a particularly high standing. They're not considered the good people uh some of them are though that some of them do have uh, some like, so it's quite interesting it's either ancient kings that people descend from um who can sometimes be ruling in sweden by the way and that's of course because the icelandic uh, uh saga writer here did not know geography that well <laughs> <laughs> um aside from that they have uh, they they always have ties to like um you know berserkir these the berserk warriors, right? That are, you know, um, that aren't honorable warriors. That's really what they—they they always have like ties to magic and Odin and and all that stuff. That that's something that the saga writers don't like either. Um, slaves typically also have have a Gaelic name, and this is of course because the people who are writing the sagas, right? They are Norwegian centric. They they love that bit of their Norwegian heritage. It's, you know, it's like, uh, and uh, Americans, please forgive me for saying this, but it's like Americans, right? Who, where you have like thirty percent Irish, you have thirty uh, percent uh, Scandinavian, and I don't know, thirty percent German or something like that, and then some little bit uh, of mix here and there, and then you choose one to follow, so to speak, as your heritage, <laughs> right? Um, that yeah. that's what the uh, the Icelanders did as well. It looks like um, Norwegian culture was more important to them. They had closer ties there, so that's that's the route they went. Um, it seems like at least. Uh, but another interesting thing is that in the saga literature um, from Iceland in the twelve uh, in the thirteenth century, um, sort of like. Iceland belongs to a cultural community that stretches to uh, the um, um, to insular Scotland, right? The Orkneys, uh, Shetland, Hebrides—they're uh, conceived of as part of the same cultural community. Ireland also shows up as as a place that seems very familiar to the Icelanders in the saga literature. 
So, so they must have had some sense of, um, uh, uh, yeah, community, I guess, uh, across this the, the North Atlantic. Denmark is also a place that seems familiar to them. Northern England seems familiar to them. Scotland seems familiar. Um, Norway is, is familiar to them, of course. Sweden generally, but also gets a little weird sometimes. <laughs> as soon as you cross that mountain ridge between Norway and Sweden, that's when you start meeting too many banjo-playing hillbillies. <laughs> and things go sour <laughs> for the Icelandic perspective, at least. <laughs> so, I mean, it appears that the Vikings and and the Celts had a fairly decent relationship. So, is it possible that those early settlers into Iceland came together from one of the sort of the Celtic sort of populated areas from maybe Ireland? Or the the west of Scotland, and those first settlers came together as a as a single group, then settled on Iceland. Or do we know for a fact that they the first people came from? Norway? So there's no um, there's no way to tell, as far as I understand, um, at least not now. So there's a there's a site called Stovafjordur uh, in eastern Iceland where they have just discovered a settlement or some kind of trade post. We don't exactly know what it is. Um, that is a um, Scandinavian-style longhouse. And in it, they have found uh, artifacts that indicate the presence of Sami people, too. Uh, so, so so, there's also like the northern Scandinavian cultures uh, are represented here. Um, and Iceland seems to have been sort of like a mix of, of many different peoples coming from many different places, just like any other uh, immigrant community, basically, in it in the history of Europe. It's a mix of different peoples coming from different places. And then at some point, hegemony is established with like one, one sort of like parent culture as the primary parent culture, right? Um, think about uh, this country that I'm in, the United States of America, right? Uh, we have like the, the largest portion of, uh, of the population, or how do I express this correctly? Um, so in the United States, there are about, um, like 51 million people who uh, uh, consider themselves primarily descended from German immigrants, right? That is the largest portion, uh, uh, immigrant portion of the population. Then you have this, the second largest, I believe, is Irish. That's around 35 million people, uh, modern Americans who consider themselves descended from Irish, right? Um, now, none of these uh, populations speak German or Gaelic for that matter, right? They speak English. Um, and that says something about uh, what has been chosen as sort of like the parent culture of, of, of this immigrant population in the United States, um, the, the, the English culture. And that is, that's, we see this all the time, right? Um, sort of like official American society, uh, quote unquote, of, official uh, always has sort of like a, some kind of attachment to to England, right? In different ways, they they even take an interest in the royal house of England over here, which is I just find fascinating <laughs> because <laughs> the whole point was to get rid of the royal house. <laughs> <laughs> those those pesky English just pop up everywhere. 
the point is that you know um it's like immigrate immigrant populations and the way that things work out over time is really complicated the irish um are sort of like given a in like in in the in the literature they 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 do they do tip their hat to the irish right because in the, uh, in eastlanding a book ari frodi the 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 one of the first historians of iceland writes that oh before the scandinavians came or particularly before the norwegians came um there were the papar these uh, uh these monks um who were hanging out and papar is an irish word um I mean, it means priests or something like that. So it's a it's like a loan loan word uh, from 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 Irish into uh, medieval Icelandic, and and so 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 they were conscious about this presence of of uh, uh, both Christians and also Gaelic people um, far into the period where they were otherwise claiming to be entirely Norwegian uh, <laughs> of descent and nothing else, <laughs> right? <laughs> Perfect. All right. Um, Brock, have you got anything else you want to touch on? Anything you want to ask Matthias? Uh, no, not really. I've I've got a little uh, I've got a little game that I want to play with you guys though, if that's all right. Oh, he has a first. Yeah. yeah. So um I've got some I was trying to think of uh Irish Irish language words that I know to be from uh of Norse origin. Because uh, you mentioned um you mentioned place names, and I don't think there are really many place names that come from Norse in in Ireland. I, I, we're thinking Wexford, um, Waterford, uh, Smerwick, uh, and I th- there's like five or something, um, and it, it's not that much. And and again, the 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 Norse didn't have a huge impact on the on the Irish language, but they did leave some uh, little 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 tidbits for us. So I just wanted to <laughs> I just wanted to see if any of you could if you either of you could guess uh, where these words come from. So perhaps if if Dan goes first because he's perhaps least likely <laughs> to know. Uh, so I'll give you a really easy one first though. So Halla. So am I? Well, am I guessing? Just guess, get guess where where this comes from. Guess what what this word means. Obviously in English because you're you're English, but halla. Can can we get the can we get the spelling for it as well? Of course, yeah. Halla is H A double L A. Okay, so I'm just just guessing what it means. Yeah. Have a cheeky guess. <laughs> cheeky guess. I mean. <laughs> um... You know, I'm just the uh, the ignorant Englishman. I don't know the, these things. Okay, Matthias. Um, so I am stuck between either cave or hall. It means hall, yeah. Ah, so cool. The, the native Irish word is arus, which is is still in um, is still in use, but but we have holla as well. See, there's uh, me. Th- there's so... me thinking hull, as in hull of a ship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, next up, uh, Irla, and Irla is spelt I A R L A. I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> if no. you don't know, then it, so and 
Irla is an an earl, a jarl. Oh, of course. Oh, ah, is it? Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think you'll know this one, Dan, but uh, Knappe. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, is it Button? Yep, Knappe yep. is Button. Uh, it came up in my uh, came up on my Instagram earlier. Somebody posted their word of the day was knapper tosta, and I was like, ah, knapper. That's a Norse word. <laughs> um, I feel so uh, stupid right now. <laughs> no, no, not not at all. This um, is brilliant. Uh, what about Gary or Gary? Gary it just sounds like my mate Gary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how is it spelled? Uh, it doesn't really give much of a clue, but G A double R A I, a long I at the end. Um, can you, uh, can is you it use fence it in a sentence or something like that? It's a yard. Yard, okay, uh, yeah. Like a, 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 a garden, yard, yes. gar- like a gar- Midgard. Yes, yes, uh, yes, exactly. Obviously. Yeah. I'm mispronouncing that because I don't speak uh, Norwegian. Uh, you, uh, you're fine. Uh, <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> uh, and, and finally, um, Sturahod. This is the trickiest one. Sturahod. Oh, I was gonna. I was gonna say I've got to get one of them, but <laughs> <laughs> can you spell it for me? Um. So it's S T I U R T H O I R. I'm just gonna let Mateus go for it. T H. It is very tricky. I R. Yeah. The spelling doesn't really help on this one. I don't think. Ah, uh, you you'd be surprised sometimes. Um. Hmm. I'm going to say that we're playing this as a team anyway. It's, it's the <laughs> Nordic Mythology Podcast team. <laughs> the first the first part sounds like something that has to do with steering. Yes. Um yeah. so steering wheel. It's the it's the Irish word for uh, a manager. Um Okay. Stjurahod. Like if you're a bank manager, you would be the, the right. Stjurahod. Yeah. Uh, and it is literally the steersman, the the man who steers the ship. Right. Um, but it, it, it comes from Old Norse. Yeah. So. Oh, that's oh, cool. Wow. <laughs> uh, I, just, I just wanted to play a little game with you guys anyway. Um, that's, that's awesome. Um, bro, so one of the questions we got asked earlier was, is there any way that you would recommend in Ireland for people to visit to learn about this kind of stuff is there any hot spots i mean obviously you can't name all of them but anywhere that you know that really stands out um so uh um i've forgotten the english name for it the dingle the dingle peninsula uh is full of um old old uh irish stuff so like pre-viking monastic stuff um, but also that's where Smerik is the uh, the butter butter bay in in Old Norse Smerik, um, and that's just an amazing landscape and amazing historical site. Um, Ardvor in um, in uh, Waterford. All I, all I can think of is the Irish names for these places. <laughs> Ardmoor in uh, in in Waterford is. Um, is full of uh, history as well. Um, if you're thinking particularly Viking stuff, then obviously go do all the touristy stuff in Dublin. It's 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 really cool. Everyone does it, but it's it's still really cool. And then um, and then I would recommend Waterford. Obviously, there's there's so much history in Waterford. Um, definitely worth a trip. Oh, brilliant! I mean, hopefully that helps people out, and they can go and 
go and yeah. look. I mean, I, I need to go to Dublin at some point and have a, a look around and an explore. Yeah, the um, the <laughs> the art museum, the um, the the National Museum in in Dublin is is so good. The archaeolog archaeological museum is uh, full of treasures. Um, and we didn't really even touch on Irish art uh, in in this, but uh, like the Hiberno Norse style of when Ernest and Ringerica was mixed with the celtic monk sort of style they've got so many artifacts from that period they've got my favorite which is the cross of kong uh they've got the shrine of saint manachan they've got um they've got all sorts uh and it's it's just so cool to see all of the detail and the intricacies up close uh and of course they have a they have uh, lots of viking stuff too um so yeah definitely worth a trip there yeah, I like I I've said this before. I um uh, I've never really been to the British Isles anywhere, like neither England, Scotland, uh, nor Ireland for that matter, and except for you know, uh, what was it like three uh, three incredibly annoying hours in Gatwick Airport. <laughs> <laughs> Next time you're back over this way, there's always a a spot here for you, and we can do a live podcast. Absolutely, that is that is a deal. <laughs> so we've got a, a couple of uh, seems on the kind of the, the game note of things. We've got a couple of funny or, or more light-hearted questions. So yeah, um, I'm going. I'm going to let you guess who this question comes from because okay, I'm sure you will. You will know. So it says, <laughs> ask Brock about the definition of a sandwich, and if whales can yawn with their blowhole. Okay, so this is uh, Singapore. <laughs> it is, yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, because one of the questions that he asked me to ask was whether lasagna is a sandwich. Okay. Um, and so on on the sandwich salad dichotomy, a lasagna is a sandwich. Um, <laughs> it's not a salad. It's a sandwich. So that that answers your question. I yeah, I mean I I have heard I've heard you and Sigurd have detailed you know conversations about what a sandwich actually is and what isn't a sandwich. I need to get in on this. Yeah. I I I You really don't. <laughs> no, I I want to be a fly on the wall for that stuff. We we could we could fill a whole podcast with that discussion. <laughs> yeah, you could what yeah. we, we we you know, next time we should get you both on together and just do uh what yeah. what you know, get different things and is is it a sandwich or isn't it a sandwich? So um, well so I had um, I had a couple of questions I had uh, I think they're kind of on along the uh, the same lines together so Augury uh, asked do you think there's any connection between Celtic and Norse deities uh, and wandering bones on Instagram asked uh, how did viking or nordic culture influence christian retellings of their own celtic legends which I don't know if I can tackle that one but um I just wanted to sort of say that um on, on in terms of the similarities um obviously there's all, always going to be some because it's they're both indo-european um and obviously we have the the well of knowledge in irish mythology and then you have the the well of mimir in uh, in norse mythology and stuff like that and i i don't know if you know much about celtic mythology either of you 
Uh, you, <laughs> well, t- you know anything? Take your or? guess at my answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> I know a bit here and there. Um, let me just say that um, if you go back uh, about uh, 2,500 uh, yeah, 2, years, I think it is, um, what the material culture seems to suggest in, in the Danish area, at least, is uh, some some Celtic influence. We have at yeah, the National absolutely. Museum in Copenhagen this beautiful chalice, the Gunnestrup chalice. It's spelled G-U-N-D-E-S-T-R-U-P. And, of course, it's pronounced Gunnestrup because... Danes hate hate vowel, uh, hate consonants, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, no that it, that is that that was you know sacrificed in a bog. Um, um, I think in in the centuries around the year zero uh, in in northern Denmark, and it it is made of silver and it's got depictions of Carnunos uh, Dagda. Uh, Morgan, you know, all of the yeah. uh, well-known uh, Celtic deities. So so there is there is definitely uh, a crossover here, not just in terms mm. of being both from the same Indo-European source, but also um, they, these traditions have been in communication with one another. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, as well the the Belgae uh, the the Belgae are described as being both Celtic yeah, and yeah in that uh, the Rhineland well, area right uh, from from um, basically from the yeah. foot of the Alps and and all the way up to uh, the Netherlands uh, uh, there from around the year zero or just before and up to the three hundreds we have a mixed culture. Uh, where you can see votive stones yeah. uh, dedicated to uh, Germanic, Roman, and Celtic uh, deities, um, and yeah, they're, they're, they're mingling in in many different ways. Um, so yeah, I I, I, I would um, mm. I, I would even go as far as saying that they both sort of belong to to the same uh, uh, traditions in 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 so many different ways. Yeah, I I was just trying to think of like um, direct cognates that I sort of I sort of could see uh, in the surviving traditions, and I was really struggling to come up with some. But obviously, like there's the idea of three three hags or three three women um, choosing someone's fate is is one that pops up pretty much everywhere, um, and I was sort of thinking of the the similarities between. Cúchulain and um, and Thor, uh, they're both they're both tribal heroes. They're both protectors of their own people. Of the, they're the hero within the tribe, uh, and they both have a, a weird object that is their weapon. So Thor has his hammer, which obviously isn't traditionally a weapon, and Cúchulain has his uh, his command, his hurling stick, which is obviously mm. also isn't. There, there's also Nuada, uh, um, right? Uh, and who it, loses his hand? That's yes. I, I'm yeah, probably course, butchering yeah. his name. Um, so no, so you're that, right. Yeah, and and in in a way as well. So he's uh, he is uh, he sacrifices his hand for the good of his people, and then you have the um, the next chief in line after him because he can't be king once he isn't whole. He's lost his hand, so he can't be king. Um, 
the next chief in line is um, Lou Larfader, Lou of the Long Hand, who obviously has the spear as his weapon, and whether that's sort of cognate with Odin coming in after after Tyr, perhaps. He he does he he shares some similarities uh, similar similar similarities. <laughs> there was a mix of similarity <laughs> and commonalities. Um, uh, similarities with uh, with both Odin and Loki. Um, and I'm mm. I'm pretty sure that Luke, uh, uh, the name uh, uh, is very uh, is can be at least theoretically uh, uh, linked to Loki. Uh, this is still a discussion. Yeah, uh, that that is going. I'm on. I'm glad you said Loki because a lot of people talking about Lou will uh, say that his name means light and means the sun and everything. And I think that's largely been discredited yeah. uh, now. Yeah. Um, that That's again, the 19th century interpretations <laughs> where, where, still, where everybody was a sun today. God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm just, I'm just going to jump in here before we, I think before we delve too far down the tribunal, I think we're about yeah. an hour and 40 minutes in. And to be honest, I think it'd be okay. fun. <laughs> I think it'd be fun to have you back on and at some point and look at these these relationship between the gods and maybe look at the mythology yeah, side. Yeah, I'd love to look at the mythology side of things a little bit because that's something I find really interesting. Look at you know the Norse gods that do relate across, and also then just explore some of the the Celtic gods in themselves. I know I'm going to butcher the name, but is it Serunos? Is the one that you had oh, kind of told me about? You go. I can see you smiling. So you pronounce the name properly. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, uh, no. Just Kernunos. It's sort of like the horned one, like corn horn. Yeah, Kernunos. So, so um, that, so he, you know, he was somebody that, that kind of really interested me. So I think that would be fun to look at, look at those different different gods. Yeah, I think we went on a real deep dive today, and and mm-hmm. perhaps went on some tangents. And I'd love to come back and talk about the art, or talk about um, talk about the the Celtic mythology. Definitely, that would be really cool. Yeah, I think that 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 definitely would be fun. You know, we we always get off track, and just I think that's what. But to be honest, yeah. I think that's what people like about these these podcasts is that it kind of just flows as a conversation. We're not too strict. Yeah, it's it's been really interesting uh, and it's been really cool to be able to ask Matthias stuff that I don't usually get to ask people. So <laughs> it's been really fun. Thank you. That, that's pretty much the whole reason the podcast started. Exactly. And <laughs> you know what? At some point, we're going to have to like have like pub meetings where <laughs> where we like record the podcast. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that would be brilliant. Um, so, Brooke. <laughs> Are you? Do you still have any of the the Kukulin, I'm going to butcher it again. The the Kukulin T-shirts you did. Yes, I do. Um, I I I forget how many are left, but there are st- still some left. Um, so, for those who don't know, um, last year, uh, my uh, my young cousin was diagnosed with leukemia. Um, and I sort of thought, what can I do to to help? And I ended up um creating a charity t-shirt for teenage cancer trusts with an image of kuhulan uh, on it so if if you go to my instagram badger king tattoo is that is that allowed or is that an affiliate link I don't no know. you, you um, advertise but... <laughs> what you want we, we we don't mind uh but yeah so if you go to my uh my instagram account the the link is to the sales of that t-shirt i don't see any of the money from it um everything after tax just goes to teenage cancer trust so 
Yeah, not only is it a brilliant cause, but it's it's a it's a brilliant t-shirt. You know, I have one. It's one of my favorite t-shirts. <laughs> Even though we make t-shirts, I still oh, thanks, love, love it. You know, it's it's a it's a great design. <laughs> so definitely, if you if people can check it out and, and go and grab one, I am definitely going to get grab one. Yeah, do I mean like I said the, the great t-shirts and Cheers, it's dude. it's for such a good cause. So I know you've raised quite a bit of money already. So if we can give it a little bit of a push, yeah, we've raised. Um... I think it's close to £1,200 so far. So nice. that's nice. Yeah, d- definitely. And I think, you know, it's just a case. It's, it's a cause that touches pretty much everybody in some way. So of it's course, good to get yeah. yeah. Brilliant. So, mm-hmm. I mean, let's, yeah, let, let's wrap this one up. Um, thank you. Obviously, anybody that doesn't know, they can find you at Badger King Tattoo. Obviously, if you want to book in and get tattooed by you, then Sacred Knot's the, the place. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's been really, really cool. Yeah, and like they say, we'll get you back on and we'll look at the more mythical side of things. Absolutely, love to. Perfect, thank you very much.